You're listening to Booth One. You can laugh. It's okay. <laughs> we like laughter on the show. I didn't know. I'm nervous. Go ahead. Don't be nervous. We're all friends here. Well, you found Booth One on your podcast provider, and we appreciate your listening in. I'm Gary Zabinski, alongside my returning co-host, Frank Taranjo, who's paying no attention to me. Did you hear me introduce you? I did. I did. I loved it. Well, we've had a few weeks off due to work commitments and the holiday, but we're back and better than ever, even if we're just a little bit older. Happy belated birthday, Frank. I missed your birthday. (laughs) Well, it was on November 8th. Yeah. I haven't seen you in a while. No, right. True. It was a nicer birthday this year than it was two years ago, because November 8th, 2016, as you may... Don't even go there. Don't even go there. It's not my favorite birthday of all time. Well, we've made it halfway through. Yes, we have. It's sort of like halfway through the winter. Now the sun is beginning to rise in the sky. In January, A little bit longer, yes. yes, Metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically, yeah. We were speaking earlier. You and I have... A difference of opinion that I have to ask you about. Okay. I went to see the new Steve McQueen film called Widows. Oh, my God. And I think you and I may be on diametrically opposed sides in this. If you liked it, we are. I thought it was awful. Really? Yes, I really did. I hated that movie. You hated everything about it? Everything about it. It was an insult. No kidding. Yeah, I really thought it was insulting to the director. It was insulting to the actors. The script was ridiculous. I just hated it. <laughs> and you liked it. Well, I was moderately entertained by it. I was expecting more. I mean, my problem was, you know, I'm all about equality of the sexes, but I hate when women stoop to men's level. And that's what I thought was happening in that ah. movie. They were just as idiotic and ridiculous as men were. It's not giving anything away. In the opening scene, these men are criminals. They, they've been robbing people and ripping people off. And professional they're criminals. Professional criminals. And their wives have kind of lived in the lap of luxury, benefiting from this. In the opening scene, the men are all killed. So the widows take on the next job. They, they were despicable people. Every single one. I didn't like anybody. There was no one to root for. They were all really horrible people. I thought it was well done. I love the actresses that were in it. I thought their performances were good. I just thought this, this script was an insult. I liked Cynthia Erivo I quite loved her. a lot. I loved she them was all. excellent. Yeah. I mean, Viola Davis was great. And they were all good. Did you see the movie? We did. We saw it together. And which side are you on? I'm going to ask you guys about this in just a minute. Uh, but I, anyway, I was semi-entertained. I was expecting a little bit more. You're I just got angry and angrier anger as I watched the movie. Yeah. 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 Were you pounding your no, armrest? No, I was rolling my eyes a lot. Like, oh, please. When you've got, when you got popcorn at- Daniel Kaluuya like, stabbing like, crippled people, I'm like, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> That's disgusting. Yes, that, that was a little bit. Come on, come that on. was a little bit far fetched in, in a bowling Ugh. alley. In a bowling alley. Yeah, yeah. you did see oh, something that stuff. you enjoyed oh, very, very much. Is it called Green Book? Green Book is wonderful. I love Green Book. I loved Can You Ever Forgive Me with uh, Melissa McCarthy. I thought that was wonderful. I loved Eighth Grade. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There is good stuff. Speaking of good stuff, there's a new play. Have you heard about this? That's opening at the Steppenwolf Theater here in Chicago. In fact, it's a world premiere production. The play is called La Ruta, Mm -hmm. which I believe Mm. translates quite simply as The Route. But from all I've read, this play tells a story.
story that isn't quiet and is far, far from simple. To help us get to know more about this show that's currently in rehearsals, mm-hmm. I am so pleased to have as our guests today, Frank, in the booth, the playwright Isaac Gomez and the actress... Karen Rodriguez. That's right. Yay. Did I, did I just do that very well? That was well? pretty good. And you're in the play as well. Yes, I am. Not just being best friends with Isaac, you're also in the show. I am, yeah. I, I fulfilled both roles, actress and best friend. <laughs> and it's, it's a special Steppenwolf production for you. It is. Because? Because it, it'll be my ensemble member debut, which Yay. is amazing. Great. Along with... Isaac Steppenwolf debut and Sandra Marquez is our director directorial Steppenwolf debut which is amazing wow. that's wow. crazy wow. this that's is going to be so exciting you're yeah. in rehearsals now right yes we're we're entering our third week well tell us about La Ruta Isaac what it's about and what specifically was your inspiration for it La Ruta very simply for me is a play about a community of women living in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, who are living in the wake of unspeakable loss. Mm. And the key word there is living. Mm -hmm. And we follow the journey of each of them as they face incredible obstacle, much of it beyond their control, how resilience takes form in various capacities and directions for each of them, and how even amidst their differences, uh, they're still much more alike than they think. Hmm. I'm keeping it purposefully ambiguous. <laughs> sure. Uh, uh-huh. don't, do, don't give too much away. No. no spoilers here. No spoilers. Did you write this from your own personal experience? Not particularly Not personal experience. <laughs> but. but the characters are based on real people. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm from the, well, both Guy and I are from the U.S.-Mexican border, different border cities. Mm-hmm. And the border town that I'm from um, is El Paso, Texas, Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, sister cities. And although I grew up in El Paso, much of my extended family lived and still lives in Juarez. And so growing up as a child, this is before uh, some of the increased violence due to like, you know, the drug war, et cetera, happening in Juarez and other parts of of Northern Mexico, specifically in Chihuahua, we would visit every weekend to spend time with my family. And, you know, growing up, there were some cultural norms that were instilled in me that I was not aware of their significance. And in that, you know, as a young man, whenever I wanted to go anywhere, I could freely without any sort of permission or any sort of guidance or mediation Mm -hmm. from anyone. When my young female cousins wanted to go places I or one of the men had to accompany them sometimes even to throw the trash and at the time I wasn't quite sure it just was when you're a kid it just is what it even is even though you were the same age as they were yeah totally yeah my they cousin were female Carla. and you weren't mm-hmm. yeah I think about her most most consistently with this because that was a pretty common experience mm-hmm. was that for protection or because culturally women can't be out on the so I'm, go- I'm gonna get there. Oh, okay I'm sorry there. Yeah. sorry I have a build <laughs> okay have a build. All right. he's a writer storyteller okay, okay. Dale, dale. You gotta let me get there. I'm an audience member who <laughs> like, wants more, wants more, wants more. He wants more. more. He wants more. <laughs> <laughs> so, Suspense, so, I said, go, so go. So growing up, this was my norm. And it wasn't until I was in college at the University of Texas at Austin that I was confronting a lot of these memories as sort of my first self-reflection of my privilege as a man in the world, even as a queer man, even as a Mexican man, how in ways I still benefit from the patriarchy, uphold it mm-hmm. subconsciously or not. Etc. And that happened when a good friend of mine, Bianca, 
was taking a class called La Chicana, a Chicana feminist course, in which they had a whole section on the missing and murdered women of Ciudad Juarez. And I remember one day she came up to me completely fuming and was saying, Isaac, there's this thing happening in your hometown and you've never told me. I don't know why you've never said this to me before. And I looked at her and I was like, what are you talking about? And she goes, women in Juarez, kidnapping, murders, nothing. Mm. And I said, no. And justifiably, she sort of (laughs) starved up Mm -hmm. upset. And then I called my mother because that's what most young Mexican people do when they're in places, moments of distress. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's what young Polish men do when they're in distress, too. We call our mothers. I love it. We have that commonality. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And so I called my mom and I was like, Mom, what is this? What is this thing Bianca's talking about? This is nothing. What are you talking about? And mom was like, Oh, yeah, everyone knows about Les Esaparecidas. And that translates to the disappeared girls. And I was like, What? Mm -hmm. And she goes, Yes, Isaac, everyone knows about them except me. Mm -hmm. And I was embarrassed of that. Everybody knew about it, but me. And, uh, then I became obsessed. So the more I researched, the more I read, the more I saw, I knew I had to go back to Juarez and see it for myself. And, um, my family hadn't been back for years. You know, we had sort of stopped crossing the border in the early two thousands because of the violence. And it was sort of around this time that I had been talking to friends like Karen and other Latina women specifically in the department about creating some kind of artistic performance piece around this, unsure of what it was going to be or why. And it was during that holiday break that I went back to Juarez. And so my friend Genesis connected me with with their friend Blanca and Blanca and her mother took me across the border and and sort of who's the, you know, because they still live there. It was there that I couldn't have imagined the people I, I was going to speak to at that time mm-hmm. who changed the course of the play forever. Mm-hmm. And it's largely who inspires the characters we see today. How about you, Kat? And where did you grow up? And tell me a little bit about your journey from there mm-hmm. into the theater world. And now here you are sitting in booth one in <laughs> Chicago. I mean, who would ever think <laughs> of a, such a meteoric member. rise? Yeah. Well, that's secondary to booth <laughs> one for sure. <laughs> but that's why I mentioned it, sorry. You know. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you came to this place. So I, I grew up in Matamoros, Tamaulipas, Mexico. And I moved to this country when I was around 10 because of my father's job. We moved to Kokomo, Indiana, of all places. And Kokomo? <laughs> Kokomo, Indiana. Shout out to Kokomo. Um, Yahoo, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I got plugged into the school system right away. So, And I had already been performing. I was a dancer, like really set on... I was going to be a dancer. And like that, a mo- modern dancer or ballet? No, ballet. Ballet. And then that stopped because then my afternoons got taken up by tutoring lessons for English. <laughs> and I, I, didn't know, I didn't know any English when I moved here. Moved to Indiana with no yes. English. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and then I would have tutoring sessions and do my homework with that tutor. We went back to my hometown. It's a border town, as Isaac mentioned. And I went to a private school across the border in Texas led me to UT Austin where I met Isaac. I studied marketing. Then that sort of was sucking my life away. I, I, I really, <laughs> I love, I love was business. Was it business marketing or, or it was performing business, arts marketing? No, it was business marketing. No, no. I still love it. It was just, a, it just didn't align with my values. Yeah, it I wasn't guess. for you. It wasn't for me. And you had done performing um, already by then. So you knew I how had, it felt. Well, that actually, when I was a freshman, my teacher, I was a very hyperactive child that hasn't changed. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was still sort of, you know, I was practicing my English. And she said, you know, you should audition for 
for theater and I used to watch like this is so cliche but I did watch as a young child the telenovelas and I would like act out the telenovelas with my doll so I was like oh my gosh is this totally it's a dream come true it's meant to be and then I started and so when I went to UT I was in the business school and I was like you know what I really miss the theater and I'm gonna double major because that was the only way to audition for main stage productions was to major and so I did and that's how I met Isaac who was like the only undergrad getting main stage shows. Oh, yeah. And I had heard about so. him and I was like, who's that? And then we became <laughs> friends. <laughs> we, we, I did a monologue in one of the classes where I had to straddle a chair. And I just like, it was from Josefina Lopez's Women from East LA. I was like a sophomore in college and I had to straddle a chair and just like show this girl how to write it. <laughs> wow. And very, that was a, very fussy. I mean, I just yeah. I say that story because that was a story that Isaac was like, who is that? Because I just, you know, everybody was doing like stupid stuff. <laughs> and, I boring. Just, and I boring just stuff. and I just and I just and that's sort of I think that really defines so our relationship. She stood out to you. Well, the thing about that moment <laughs> that God, I can't believe I told that story. No, no, it's I think it's relevant because because the thing about that moment, which actually hasn't changed in Karen's trajectory as an actor, <laughs> is her, one, willingness to go there, two, explore, unapologetically unsure of the result, and three, to be bold. And there was something, for me, at the time I wasn't writing formally. Mm-hmm. I've always been a writer, mm-hmm. you know, since I was a kid. I, I wrote a stage adaptation of... Um, the best Christmas pageant ever for my Catholic church when I was like 12. <laughs> Great. And, and then a friend of mine committed suicide my freshman year of college. He had jumped off the parking garage of um, our dorm. And I wrote a play in response to that. But even then I still was like, well, I'm not a writer. Mm-hmm. Titles are weird and I didn't quite feel like that was... But you were always writing. But I was always yeah. writing, yeah. And so... What drew me to Karen in that experience and is what still drives me to her today in her being in my plays and with all the commissions I have coming up, the first thing I think of is, okay, what's Karen's role? (laughs) Often, unless it's a play that centers on men, which there aren't very many. Most of my plays center on the experiences of women, specifically Mexican women. I owe my entire existence to Mexican women, so they live fervently in my spirit, and this is my way to give back. Mm. What makes Karen uniquely Karen is her ability to just be bold, to not be afraid to fail. And what's beautiful is because my plays, they have the same sort of urgency. If you don't come at it with that, as if everything's on fire, because my life is on fire, so that translates in my writing, Mm -hmm. then you won't know, you can't uncover what's in the character's psyche. And Karen is one of the few actors I know who on first jump says, I don't know where this will take me, but I'm just going to commit and go there completely so that I can see, okay, what did I uncover? And then from finesse from there, which is a, a rare but incredibly admirable way of working. I would think so. Kevin, have you always been fearless like that? Are you, are you, are you as fearless in your, in your personal life as you are on stage? Sorry, I'm still really damn bunny. Okay, um, <laughs> I don't know if I would say I'm fearless because I think I would say I'm more brave because fearless is like without fear and actually like I'm scared all the time. 
But you're willing um, to take. But I'm willing to do take it, the man. plunge. Yeah, and I think it's like because of people like Isaac. Because when I'm in rooms with people like that, and they're very few. I mean, it really is Isaac and now Sandra Marquez. Um, I'm lucky to also have that person who builds that kind of space for me to just go there. And there's a reason why there's synergy here because. I wouldn't be able to go there if the text didn't allow me to. And there's so many nuances in Isaac's writing. He writes complete women who are lovable and complicated and ugly and violent and everything. And like literally that will be one person. And mm. that's me. That is women. And that is people. If a person's pushed to an extent enough, you will see all kinds of colors in that person. And that's what he writes. That's and very so, smart. Yeah. Man, I'm blessed. How long ago did you come here together and why did you choose Chicago? So we moved here five years ago five now. Five years ago. Karen, why don't you talk first about <laughs> the inception seat of Chicago, which never, yeah. I had no intention in living in the city. Yeah. Like at all. Well, is it, you know, school, at least like where we went, it, it, like the teaching was quite binary like if you wanted to do film acting you would go to LA and if you wanted to do theater and film you would go to New York right but there were a lot of grad students who were from Chicago and one of them I had a conversation with her she said so Karen like are you thinking you're gonna do like the business thing or are you thinking you're gonna do the theater thing and I said you know what I'm young man I'm gonna I'm just gonna hit it where are you thinking I don't know she said well you should think about Chicago and I said Okay, really? And she goes, yeah, like, I really think you would have a career there. And somebody else echoed that. But in that particular conversation with that particular woman, she said, and if you do, wherever you move, you should move with Isaac. And I said, what? She goes, yeah, you both should move together. Because, and I said, and I was super freaked out because we were best friends, but like now we're blood. But we were, you know, like it was a different relationship back then, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, really? And she goes, yeah, you guys just bring out the best in each other. And I told Isaac as a joke, like I was like, dude, let me tell you what she said. Like, and we were like, ha, ha, ha. Maybe it's true. Like, and then we just did it. And then we just did it. And like, and I said, oh no. And then I said, I'm going to move to Chicago. And Isaac was like, I'm going to yeah, New I York. Said, Ew. <laughs> Yeah. I'll see you never. <laughs> yeah. And then and then what happened to me was oh I I was I mean I mean as is true with a lot of people especially the thing about being born and raised on the border is there's a an intentional structural component financially, politically, legislatively that says you will stay there. Mhm. Mm a lot of people who are born and raised on the U.S.-Mexican border don't leave. Mm -hmm. The majority stay. There is a lot of sort of systemic oppression and supremacy that, that, that very intentionally and strategically keeps people there. And so the and idea... And it's safe because oh, like, so safe, there's, yeah. no, there's no other place like that. Like you're living in two places at once. When I went to UT, I was super Mexican to people. And when I go back home to Matamoros, to my cousins, they call me gringa. Because I, yeah. for the mere fact that I speak uh, English. Mm -hmm. And so and, and that displacement, because it's so unique to that area, of course you're going to want to stay because it's mm -hmm. familiar and you're seen. 
I bet they love you in Kokomo, though. <laughs> <laughs> you probably you probably have probably streets <laughs> named for you in Kokomo. <laughs> That's how no. famous you are. No. <laughs> so you were not yeah. even considering Chicago no, no. at that point. I, I knew. Right, I, th- I thought in my head I was going to move to New York. Mm. I hadn't felt that in my spirit since I was like in sixth grade, <laughs> and then I got rejected from every university <laughs> I applied to except for UT Austin. You know, and for I'm a first generation college graduate. It's evolved since I, I left for school, but at that time, no one in my family had pursued a college degree in my immediate family. Neither of my parents graduated high school. Both of my older brothers had kids when they were in high school still. And so for me, I felt a strong pressure to, I, I wanted something different. And in my head, I thought moving to New York would be like the complete mm. extreme, like, like this is, I will have quote unquote made it. And then got rejected and then went to UTS and I was super pissed for like three years. And then I was like, you know what? I actually love Austin. Austin's such it's a, a nice city. School. Yeah, yeah, it's a great school. Great it's a town. great program. Great town. I was like, this is great. And then at the time, weirdly, I was also starting to take my first classes in dramaturgy. And I was like, well, you know, this is, this is interesting. I like context. That feels useful. Context, and I keep it vague because it can be historical, it can be personal, it Mm -hmm. can be societal, it can be contemporary. Like, context informs art. It just does, Mm -hmm. even if you don't want it to, sadly. Mm. If you see a play the day that you have your car car window broken into and it's a play about a home invasion, like, your reception of the play is going to vary. It's going to be different than had that experience not happened to you. And that's true in all capacities of life. And that's what informs my writing. I just didn't know that at the time. Mm. And so when I applied to all these programs in dramaturgy and literary and all these things in big theaters in New York and across the country, including, hilariously, the apprenticeship program at Steppenwolf, in which I was a <laughs> finalist and I didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> never, never forget. forget never Aaron forget. Carter and Jacob Padron, if you're listening to me, I remember your rejection. He, he doesn't forget it. Just but right now. The last, I, you got the last re- laugh. Re- wow. Revenge is a dish <laughs> well, best well, served well, cold. Yeah. yeah. Isaac. Yeah. They're my dear friends, so yeah. I, I love them exactly. now. Exactly. So Look okay at you now. now. I know. Now <laughs> your name's on the marquee. It's so ah. weird. <laughs> It is very strange. <laughs> no. So then in in late summer, I hadn't heard from a couple. So I was like, okay, I didn't get it. One of them, including the Goodman. And I was like, I guess I'm staying in Austin. You applied for some position mm-hmm. at the Goodman Theater. Yeah, the literary yeah. internship there. Oh. And I was like, well, I guess, Isaac, like you're going to have to just accept that you won't amount to much. And... You'll figure it out and Texas will be fine and that will be it. Like I, I'm an earth sign, so I can't <laughs> linger. You know, I'm like, okay, what, it, what are my yeah. givens? Let me see what I can do. And so I had already accepted that. And then randomly at the end of July, I got a phone call from the Goodman saying, hey, we want to interview you for the literary internship position, which at the time I thought was a huge deal. Now that I've had my own interns and I'm aware of the <laughs> timeline, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure I was not the first choice mm-hmm. given because they wanted me to, when I finally got offered the position, which was like the next mm-hmm. day, very rare. They said, well, you got to move here by mid August. Yeah. And this was at the end of July. And they're like, and we need to know by tomorrow. <laughs> and, then, and then you called me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had, at that point, we already had discussed. And then I hadn't heard anything. So I was like, I'm just going to stay in Austin or I'm going to go back home to the border. I don't know what I'm going to do with my business degree. And then he calls me. He goes, hey, I just got this Goodman internship. 
are you gonna do it or what? Because if not, I'm just getting a studio or like, I don't know, I'm gonna get some random roommate. So yes or no, yes or no. And I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> and then I remember I hung up and I was like, crap. Now what am I gonna do? <laughs> like, you know, because I had all this stuff to figure out, but yeah. Yeah, so then moved to Chicago <laughs> and I did the literary internship at The Good Men. And in the years since have actually really fallen in love with Chicago. I'm, I feel like the universe put me exactly where mm-hmm. I needed to be. That's right. I love the city. And we're glad you're here. Both of Thank you. Thank you. We're very glad you're here. Mm-hmm. I need to digress here yeah, for a please, moment. Go ahead. F- Frank, yeah. you're going on a cruise soon. In yes. a couple of days, yes. I, I understand. I'm going to be gone from podcasting for a little while, but yeah. In a few days, I'll be flying to Singapore and spending about four days there and then getting on a celebrity line cruise, and it goes to Bangkok. I will be spending one night in Bangkok. Wow. Those of you who get that reference. Where the world's your oyster. <laughs> Correct. And then we go to three stops in Vietnam, Da Nang, Hue, and Ho Chi Minh City, which I guess used to be Saigon. Saigon. Yeah. And like when I was in Hungary this summer, I had Hungarian goulash in Hungary. And so I'm hoping I can see a production of Miss Saigon in Saigon. <laughs> I don't know that there is one, but yeah, hopefully I can sure find one. You know, you, you like cruises, though, don't you? I do. You? Yeah, I do. I, I like the convenience of it when I'm going to places that I'm very unfamiliar with. Like, I have not been to Vietnam. They wanted me to go 50 years ago, and I said, no, I'll wait till you guys work things out. Please. So, you know, I, I don't know anything about those countries, and so I like going back to the safety of the ship and knowing where I am. There's a certain comfort going to a cruise ship. You're out, you know, running around. St. Petersburg, Russia, or whatever, but then you go back on the ship and have your lobster dinner. <laughs> so, Well, in our Good Times and Bum Times segment today, which we haven't done in a little while, we haven't. Here's a good time for cruise ship travelers with the news of a renewed plan to build the Titanic 2. Oh, have goodness. you heard about this? I have, I yes. Hear about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An ocean liner modeled on the doomed vessel that sank in 1912. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Blue Star Line officials promised the new ship will deliver the authentic Titanic experience. That's hilarious because it was the White Star Line that was the actual Titanic. They're calling themselves Blue Star Line. Well, you got to change something. I True. Mean, you That'll can't make a keep huge it difference. exactly the yeah. same. <laughs> I'd do it. Would you? I would do it. I would prefer to tour it when it was on dry land rather than actually taking a trip on it. But yeah, I would probably do it. Cadden? No. (laughs) Why would you tempt the fates like that? No. Okay. I'm going to honor the dead. You're an earth earth sign anyway, Isaac. Earth sign, we stay on earth, man. Fantastic. (laughs) In our bum time segment, it's a bum time for taking your coffee black. Do you drink black coffee? I don't drink coffee at all. That's that's right. Yeah, Yeah, I don't like it. After a new study found that people who shun milk and sugar in their java are more likely to be psychopaths. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start piling it in because I don't want to be known as that. Researchers found a robust relation between increased enjoyment of bitter foods and heightened sadistic proclivities. I can believe that. I don't like bitter food. Who likes bitter food? Well, then you're not a psychopath. Oh, I think I am, but I'm not. Sadistic. Proclivities. Proclivities. Do you like bitter food? Are you already writing the play in your your head, Isaac? I drink one to three cups of black coffee a day. Oh, so you like that. So I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, I was like, what's a proclivity? 
it's like a tendency to yeah yeah sadistic oh i guess so i'm a writer so that's sadistic <laughs> but you take it out in your writing not on other people no i don't take it i take Dude. it on myself through my writing oh, yeah. that's the tragedy okay. well i was going to ask you and this leads me right into this question <laughs> we've had playwrights fiction and poetry writers on this program previously brett nevue was on I the love program brett. i love you brett <laughs> we've had Stuart dieback on the program before now, you say you've always written, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that means that you've always put pen to paper in some way, whether you were intending to write a play or a novel, or whether you were just writing down your thoughts, your ideas, whatever your heart was telling you. Do you find it pleasurable? Do you find it cathartic? Do you find it fun? Hmm. <laughs> or none of the above. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's interesting because it is and it's not for me. I've always admired my colleagues who can be imaginative and that's what drives their their writing is is imagination and um exploration and wonder right which sounds i mean i could be totally wrong because i'm not in their heads but from when i when i hear about it or i'm in writing circles with them and i'm i'm with them in their process i go wow like i wish i could do that it's not that's not in me it's never been in me when every time i've written it's always been from a place of memory from a place of trauma usually and from a place of wanting to it's two it's twofold it's unearthing secrets Mm. mine (laughs) my family the people around me my community uh the world and also to never forget you know when i think about well why was i writing every single day from like age five to to today but as a young person when i didn't know that writing was like a profession a career something that that would inevitably give me some kind of income and the reality was i never wanted to forget i didn't want to forget what happened to me that day Mm -hmm. i didn't want to forget the people i met i didn't want to forget the terrible thing that someone did to me I didn't want to forget the terrible thing I did to somebody else so that I don't do it again. I didn't want to forget that incredible look of the sky on that one day or that feeling of jumping off like metal swings and the smell of my hands after. I never wanted to forget it. The calluses on my father's fingers when he would cook fajitas. I never want to forget it. I never wanted to forget my family with so much death and disease and addiction and trauma and abuse always still with so much love I never wanted to forget it Mm -hmm. and so many people don't know it and I want them to know it so desperately and so what feels a lot of what I write today is a desire to say hey this is me These are the people I love. These are the people I hate. These are the things that I'm afraid of. And every single play I write in a weird way is from, I describe it loosely as an exorcism of some kind. An exorcism. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because that's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. If it's, it is joyous and it is cathartic. It's so painful. Mm -hmm. I cannot describe the feeling. I wish I could. Like if I could, that is one thing I've yet to put into words is, is the feeling of my ugliest self sometimes to try to convey the thing I don't understand and for other people usually got in to read them and to hear it over and over and over it's traumatic Mm -hmm. 
Is it like that when you're watching it perform? Oh my god, then? it's awful. That's why I can I can never. I'm there through previews. Lord help me. I'm there <laughs> for opening, and then I'll come maybe once or twice throughout the run for sure. Closing. It's really hard for mm-hmm. me to sit through my own plays because I just I see everything you need to know about how I feel about the world, everything you need to know about how I feel about myself, everything you need to know about my family just comes to my place and, and, and that is the most vulnerable you'll ever see. And me. probably the better the production, the more painful it would be oh, because yeah. they get everything out mm-hmm. of it. Well, and that's where Garen is so crucial to my process because she isn't afraid to find herself in me. And for some actors, it can be scary because, again, it requires you to sometimes say and do things that bring you great pain, mm-hmm. to say and do things that make you angry at yourself, at the people around you, in hopes that that translates or transcends mm-hmm. your experience so that someone watching says and feels, oh, my God, I thought it was just me. Mm-hmm. Now, has your family seen this and recognized themselves in anything? <laughs> oh, man. Their stories. <laughs> Too many times. Okay. But, but the, the, thing, the thing that's become beautiful about it, though, is, you know, I have another play called Wally World. Uh, it's part of the Colorado New Play Summit with Denver Center for Performing Arts. It's coming spring in February. And that's an homage to my mother. She has been working at Walmart for 20 years and worked toy up from cashier to uh, assistant manager of lingerie to department manager of ladies wear to assistant manager, to co-manager, to now store manager of one of the largest retail market Walmarts in the country. Wow. Um, this is a woman who does not have a, co- have a high school diploma, does not have a college degree. And now, after having grown up poor working class, and now that we're all gone, is making a lot of money. Wow. <laughs> she doesn't Fantastic. know what to do with it. She can spend it on herself. <laughs> she, she is. She, she, yeah. Actually, she's not. No, she is, and she's not. Of, she puts have. a lot of it aside because she's, she's still very Mexican about it. So mm-hmm. she's like, I could die tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I need to have this mm-hmm. for whomever. Yeah, well, she uh, knows the cost now. So. And has that. she seen Wally World? She has, and she she told me she has notes. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, but, mom has Karen, notes. <laughs> what's yeah. it like having the playwright in the rehearsal process? Have you done many original? Yeah, that's scripts? my jam. Yeah. That's your that's your thing. Yeah. Uh, do you find that to be helpful? Do you find that to be freeing, or do you find it to be uncomfortable a little bit trying to interpret this person's worldview? Well, I think it depends on the writer. But Isaac, no, it's it's awesome. In, f- in fact, if anything, half the time he's the one squirming, <laughs> watching <laughs> me go there. I mean, you know, we've done three productions prior to this. It's amazing because I'm really free in it. Yes, like I, I infuse myself, but he at this point also knows my voice really well. And it's not, they're not the same character, but he knows like my humor and he knows what I like. But I especially like to make people laugh because I just think it's so disarming. And Is there any chair straddling in this production? <laughs> Actually, kind of. there is. <laughs> But I mean, not, but not to fantastic. teach that kind of stuff, you know. No, I'm. I'm, I'm oh, okay. <laughs> She's teaching something else. Just, I'm teaching something. Else. It's just very easy to just lose myself in it because I know that if something that is not necessarily in the script comes out of my mouth, he's very honest, and sometimes he's like, "Oh my gosh, I need to add that," or he'll say, "No, go back to the thing." It's very comfortable, and then sometimes I'll also turn to him and say, 
I mean, not not in the room, but like privately, I'll say, hey, like this moment, I just think it's like more this, or I think that like, I just wouldn't say anything here because this is, and we really like dive in, the both of us. It's like, like it's our geeky moment. Like it really, we invest so much and I think, and I hope anyway, that it shows, that it shows like that investment and that continuous mining for the truth Mm. of whoever I'm playing and who, you know, and the other characters. What's been really interesting, I'm talking very singularly because the other productions, it's been solo show, so it's just been me. And then the other one was just, it was a two-person show, so it was me and Rashad Hall. So this is the first time, you know, that I have to kind of share him. <laughs> it's an ensemble, right. Uh, how, how, how many actresses in the play? Nine or something like that? There's five or principles, ten? right? It's six principles and, and two ensemble, so eight mm-hmm. total. The show descriptions for La Ruta identify the cast as all female and Latinx. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on the use of that word a little bit, Isaac? Totally. Because so it, it was brand new to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and technically, because these are all... They all the, the whole cast identifies as women. Yeah, you can say all Latina. You know, all female Latinx contradicts the intention of the term Latinx. The X and the X implies um, that there's someone who identifies outside of the gender binary in the space. So, like, it means different to different things to different mm-hmm. people, right? Like, the more I guess you can say, like, quote unquote, like radical or appropriate use of the term is when your community, your practice, whomever the space in which you're using Latinx is implying that you are intentionally dismantling a gender binary, Mm -hmm. even if there are people in the room who don't identify outside of the gender binary, Mm -hmm. which isn't always true. Mm. So it's like all of the above. It's everybody. And it's because Spanish... Yeah. Yeah. And it's because Spanish is a gendered language. Right. There's feminine endings and masculine endings. So Mm -hmm. it's a more inclusive... And mm. and what I and for me and this is a lot of my colleagues who are activists and and academics might disagree with and we've had conversations about it is because of the fact that there is a prioritization of the masculine and in Spanish language so I can be in a room of all women mm. which luckily for me in this process I am and I, I think it's beautiful I'm the, I'm often the only cisgender men in the room usually but if you were to talk to someone formally in the use of Spanish, you would still say this is there were a lot all Latinos. Yeah. Even though I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. And so when I use the X, knowing that there isn't except when certain people come in and out, but large in part, all, you know, cisgender women and me, technically no one in that space would use the X, but I use it because I want to dismantle the patriarchy in the yes. language itself. To say, no, let's let let's do it this way. But mm. it's different for different people. Mm. Isaac, have you ever considered writing a play without words? You mean like a, like a best wall, small, small mouth sounds type of thing? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. <laughs> I saw small mouth sounds mm-hmm. uh, just a week ago, and I did want to give a shout out to a Red Orchid oh, Theater's so production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. much of the play takes place without speaking mm-hmm. because the location of the play is a spiritual retreat where part of your obligation is to not speak. Mm -hmm. It's out in the woods somewhere, and you can walk around and meditate, and then you go to these meetings and you hear a lecture, but you're not supposed to communicate Mm -hmm. with vocal sounds. 
And you know, a red orchid space is so small. Yeah, You're, it's as close as I am to you across from this table. Mm-hmm. I was to the actors. Mm. Uh, my friend Larry Grimm is in the show. Jennifer Angstrom, who has been a guest on the show, Frank, yep. is in it. Yes, she is. I found it really fascinating what these actors and the director were able to achieve without words mm-hmm. whatsoever. Whole plot lines were going on that you never heard any words to. Yet it was easy to follow what was what? Extremely easy. Cool. I, I think it was beautifully directed, beautifully staged, and very well acted. I did admire the technique, and I certainly admired the production quite a lot. Great direction, really terrific cool. direction. Cool. Isaac, you did an interview with someone not long ago where you said, I consider myself the son of superheroes. Mm-hmm. We've touched upon your family a little bit and your mother, and you've mentioned your father. What exactly does that sentence mean to you? Every single part of who I am, I owe, I owe to my parents, really. My mother especially, as someone who I really took to as a young man who felt displaced by men because of of my sexuality. You know, my mother had a really hard upbringing, so did my father, and they both made some really incredible sacrifices to create a life for their family and their kids, especially that would be beyond what they could have ever imagined for themselves. And so for me to be raised with, I consider them titans, we live in a world in which like validity of experience and power is rooted in money and in diplomas and in where you went on holiday and what kind of house you live in and what kind of food you're cooking. And yet the rigor of a human to give all of yourself when you have nothing to begin with, for me, I don't know some, anything more heroic than that. Did you recognize that growing up, or was that something you came to realize later? Sadly, it took me needing to leave home to realize Ah. it. I wish I had the the, the perspective then that I have now. I mostly was sad and angry as a child. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was a, a baby, I was one when my dad, he works in construction, and he built our house from the ground up. Because our family was expanding, my dad wanted to build a house, a brick house, and so, and that was, he said, if there's anything, he said, my life's goal is to build my family's house with my own two hands. And he did it. And so, mm. in wow. his mind, mm. he. Are he they still in it. that house? Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. great. They will never leave. Cool. Uh, I, I wouldn't leave if I built my own no. house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cannon, I read somewhere that you like silly voices. <laughs> Oh my God! Yes, I do. Where did you say that? (laughs) I know exactly where he got it. I got it. He got it off my agent page. It's a pretty public place. It is a public place. What sort of silly voices do you enjoy? Dios mío, este. (laughs) I know what that means. I can do a. I can do a Gollum impression, but I haven't done it in a really long time. I don't know why I put that. Okay. Well, you've had a glass of wine. Why do you got to rat me out like that? <laughs> I've had a pint of bourbon. Yeah, right. And so we're really primed for your Gollum impression. Can you do a okay. quick few seconds okay. of that for us? Okay. My precious. <laughs> that was really good. Yeah. I, I whip that out sometimes. That's fantastic. <laughs> 
You should do her voiceover work. It's quite good. I, yeah, I do voiceover work, but you know, I you know, it's like it's like it's like when I tell people I'm funny, like do your camera. Do your camera. Well, you don't do jokes. You're just a funny person. I'm told, yes. You're, you're told you're a funny person. I'm told I'm funny, a funny, funny person. Kmart. Okay, okay. Este. Las camisetas a 10 dólares este verano en Kmart. Yeah, no sé. No sé, no sé. Because I don't have a script in front of me. I don't make up this stuff. But it's I on see. the Spanish channel. See. No, yeah, uh huh. Like, I, you like know. Kmart's gone now. Yeah. Y'all heard? And then, and then They're I, all gone? Yes. I knew they were going. I know. I'm out of a job. <laughs> Do they tell you? Do they say, hey, Kmart's closing? No, no, so. they, don't, they don't promote that. Did you work for Kmart? I did, yeah. Oh, I, I so actually that was actual was, something no, you would yeah, say. No, yeah, uh-huh, no, yeah. I'm it not translate. just making it up. I know. Yeah, well, yeah. I just thought you were imitating a Kmart lady. She was what? the official voice Same. of Kmart. Uh, and what Spanish was it you radio? said a minute ago? It was like shirts for $10, only at Kmart. <laughs> blue light special, could you say special. <laughs> Is there a Spanish for blue light special? Yeah, kind of. And then sometimes I would do like a... They would do like Labor Day and Halloween and all that stuff. And for Halloween, I went, ooh. And then they cut it. (laughs) They didn't like it. I made them laugh. I made them laugh in the actual session. And I was like, yes, they're going to use it. And then I just, they didn't. (laughs) Well, let me ask you both this question. And I've asked this of guests before. If you weren't pursuing a career in theater, what else would you have liked to do? Imagine it could be anything, not just what you studied in school. If this had to all end today, Isaac, and you were forced to go do (laughs) your next love, or maybe it's your first love, I'm not sure, is there something that you would want to be doing? What I would want to be doing would be, and I've said this before, if I wasn't a writer, I would be a talk show host. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, And I would be (laughs) great. You would be good. I would be so great, because I ask great questions, and... Mm-hmm. I, I know how to pick out a good couch. Mm-hmm. So. And you know a good story when you see it. And I know a good story when I see it. That's so right. that's, But I know I'm feeling fairly confident if the law was like, writers can't write anymore, and I will be persecuted if anyone found anything of me writing, then I, I'm feeling fairly confident. And just given my personality, I would sadly probably pursue like a career in law. Talk show host or law. Yeah. yeah. Or talk show host about law. No. no, that sounds terrible. <laughs> that would get awful. canceled. How about you, Kevin? It's very strange because Jim? I feel like I would do something with like fashion. I feel I really like expression, so I think I would like design my own stuff. And I feel like there's some of you out there that would buy it. I hope. But that's, that's what stylist. I would. Thank you. Attention, yeah, yeah. attention, Kmart shoppers. I know, yeah, right? Really. Right? It's the new. It's Kmart. Got in Mart. Okay. <laughs> Andale, come here. Okay. <laughs> but it wouldn't be $10. No. You know? no, no It'd no. be like 98 Come on. At least. Help a girl out. Okay. <laughs> Let me call back to something we talked about at the very, very top of the show. Frank and I had both seen the new Steve McQueen film called Widows, and you both chimed in in the background that you'd also seen it. Can I get your quick take on it, Isaac? So here's what I'll say. We saw it after rehearsal. Yes. I would like to go back because I was definitely exhausted when I experienced, when I experienced the film. I thought the acting was phenomenal. It's interesting here you talking about your sort of perception of the motivations around the characters of mm-hmm. women. Because when I heard an interview from Viola Davis, which I had heard that morning that I saw it, which is why I was like, let's go see it. Because it was so in- inspiring to me. 
Well, she was talking about how much she hates heist movies because in her experience of watching them, she felt pretty passionately that if you are a quote-unquote normal person and then for somehow something had to instill you or incite you to have to pursue a criminal life, Mm -hmm. more often than not, she doesn't see the motivation behind it when she experiences those characters. And she said, but coming into Steve McQueen's, she said there was something palatable about what she felt, which I did see Mm -hmm. in the film, in my personal take, was a strong need for survival, um, especially in a city like Chicago. Snaps to that. It was was filmed here. And the circumstances Uh for all of them. Actually, like I felt the stakes were incredibly high when I Mm -hmm. think about Michelle Michelle Rodriguez's character and I think about her shop as a Mexican who has Mm -hmm. a familiarity with that kind of small business owner mm-hmm. lifestyle, especially in that context, like this, especially with her partner, mm-hmm. the stakes are huge. And also like, I totally hear the instinct of, of why should women have to stoop down to the levels of men? But I'm like, why not? Yeah. I they never get to. And I challenge that because I had, I had a strong reaction to your comments, Frank. Okay. Because Let's <laughs> hear them. I'll say this. I agree with Isaac. It's like, even if they do quote unquote stoop, why not? Why not? But two, I, I, I didn't see that. And I, I'm just going to piggyback off of Isaac because it is true. Like all of their stories had to do with survival, had to do with I just learned this horrible truth about my partner. Yeah, You've got some Siskel and Ebert thumbs up, thumbs down yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's up to But it just yeah. made me, it kept yeah. making me angry. Let us know. Report yeah. back yeah. to right. Booth One. A good, healthy debate over a, a very interesting film mm-hmm. uh, that's gotten quite a lot of press, a lot of ink mm-hmm. out there on this movie. Yeah, and I'm in the minority. The reviews are quite good on this the movie. The reviews and I guess maybe pretty, much, more. Yeah. pretty much are, are, are positive. Mm-hmm. I think to just tie it back to La Ruta, it is interesting yes. because what I think Widows does and do, La Ruta challenges very similar mm-hmm. things. Okay. So, again, without giving too much away, it's when it's all gone and you're in incredible and unordinary amounts of danger by external circumstances, what do you do? Mm-hmm. What and, do you do? And can you even imagine it? Like, I really question that. I really question, like, can you really put yourself in, in the shoes of those people, especially in La Ruta? And I don't think that you can until you're there. Like, you won't really know how you will react until you're there, and you have to make the choice. And the play probably brings us as close as we can get to being there yes. without actually having yes. to experience that. Whole, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We hope so. Well, yeah. we will let you know. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Isaac Gomez and Karen Rodriguez, mm-hmm. you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. That's dash O-N-E.com. That's, yeah, correct. Thank Frank. Yes. And, and click on the donate button. It's quick. It's easy. It's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any and all contributions would be greatly appreciated. You've both probably listened to our programs or our episodes before. As you know, we finish our episodes with a segment we call the kiss of death. <laughs> Don't shirk away. Kevin, it's it's fine. It's it is actually a tribute and a celebration of someone who who is just recently passed, and they are either famous or not famous or ordinary people, but someone who's contributed something to our culture. 
do you do your own stunts, Karen? Or do you have to do any stunts? <laughs> do you in have your to do any place? stunt work? And you're yes. And I'm not famous enough to have like a double. Maybe one day, <laughs> but yeah, no, I do my own stunts. I fall. I, I, in fact, for the displays, oh one of God, Isaac's yeah. shows, I flew. I got possessed, <laughs> and I flew, and and then I fell, and then I. <laughs> Then I killed someone, and you know. Wow! In yeah. the show, yeah, not, yeah. Not and all of that was me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit today about Kitty O'Neill. You may remember Kitty O'Neill, Frank, as okay. I get farther into this story. This begins with a bit of a story on a dry lake bed in the Alvord Desert in Oregon in December 1976. Kitty O'Neill wedged herself into a three-wheeled rocket-powered vehicle called the SMI Motivator. What? Isn't that fantastic? Then watched an assistant count down from 10 with hand signals. At zero, she pushed the throttle down. The motivator accelerated rapidly, though silently, for Miss O'Neill, for she is deaf. <gasps> Her speed peaked briefly at 618 miles per hour. Oh, my God. And with the second explosive run measured over one kilometer, she attained an average speed of 512 miles an hour, shattering the land speed record for women by about 200 miles per hour. Wow. wow. She was going pretty fast, yeah. I would say. Maybe a That's little too nice. fast. I hope she wasn't on 83. Wow. For Ms. O'Neill, her record, which still stands today, I should mention, was the highlight of a career in daredeviltry. She also set speed records on water skis and in boats and working as a stunt woman. She crashed cars and survived immolation. And one stunt as a double for Lindsay Wagner, you remember the Bionic, yeah, Bionic woman, woman, right? Sure. She flipped a dune buggy on the television series, Bionic Woman. And in another, she leapt 127 feet from a hotel balcony onto an inflated airbag as Linda Carter's stunt double in Wonder Woman. Wow. There's a fantastic picture of this that we'll post on the website of her leaping off the balcony of this Jeez. hotel. She said, I had a lot of fun. <laughs> that was her comment. <laughs> Kitty Lynn O'Neill was born in 1946 in Corpus Christi, Texas. Oh. She was a few months old when a high fever caused by measles, mumps, and smallpox destroyed nerves and led to her deafness. Her mother, Patsy, who, by the way, was a native Cherokee, taught her to read lips instead of learning sign language. Kitty loved speed at an early age. When she was four, she demanded that her father prop her atop his lawnmower and ride as fast as he could possibly go. <laughs> she excelled at swimming and diving and trained with the noted coach, Sammy Lee, who later coached Olympians like Greg Luganis. Oh, wow. we, we, this is all our era. Yeah, yeah. We remember Greg's still around. He is. But it wasn't scary enough for me, she said. She took up hang gliding, scuba diving, water skiing, and skydiving. But she found her metier in faster, more dangerous pursuits astride motorcycles and at the helm of rocket-fueled cars. Would you like to go that fast, Cannon? <laughs> Would you be scared going that fast? Yes. I've seen you on Lakeshore Drive. It's pretty. <laughs> yeah, I'm famous there, and I just, <laughs> just stared at No, I don't know if I could do that. Can That's... you imagine going 600 miles an hour? I can't, I can't imagine what that would be like. I don't know. No, I cannot. Because it's not until I moved to Chicago that I knew what negative 48 degrees felt like. <laughs> and I could not imagine it. I did, and it, I was wrong. So I can't imagine that. No. How about you, Isaac? Would you like to go that fast? Yeah. Sometime. <laughs> As a talk show host, you might actually have the opportunity to do that. I'm a thrillist. He is. I, I love is. it. Well, you live on the edge. You're a playwright. You're, I live on the edge, man. Same, for Swallowing sure. out. 
Being deaf, Left she often right. said, helped deepen her concentration, whether she was racing a dragster or leaping off buildings. Uh, those perilous worlds melded for her in the 70s after she met the stuntman Ronald Hambleton. The two lived together, and with the help of Mr. Hamilton and another stuntman named Hal Needham, who turned into a film director eventually, uh, yeah. Miss O'Neill began performing stunts in movies and on television. Wow. In the 70s, stunt people in Hollywood became quite famous uh, publicly. Yeah, there was even a movie called The Stuntman, which kind of glorified it. Peter mm. O'Toole. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. In 1977, Gabriel Toys introduced the Hal Needham Western movie stunt set. And boy, do I wish I had this. <laughs> Complete with a cardboard Old West saloon movie set, lights and props, a mm. toy movie camera, and a spring-launched Hal Needham action figure that would break through a balcony rail and land on breakaway tables and chairs and crash through a window. <laughs> you know, they even made a Kitty O'Neill doll. Wow. Did they? Action figure. Oh, wow. Yeah. To check for that on eBay. It's you amazing. can find one on eBay. <laughs> uh, they were only manufactured for a short time and have become highly collectible. Miss O'Neill moved on seeking the thrills and danger of extreme speed in other fast vehicles and feeling the G-forces against her only 98-pound body. I guess she was 5'2", 98 oh my gosh, pounds. she's so tiny. Oh, wow. Amazing. She's jumping and leaping off stuff. That's probably good. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful feeling, she said in 1978, the year Mattel started manufacturing a Kitty O'Neill <laughs> stuntwoman action figure. Mm. In yeah. 1979, she was the subject of a made-for-television movie oh. called Silent Victory, the Kitty O'Neill story with Stockard Channing in the title oh, role. No, I'll have to look for that, too. I bet that's on... Netflix what? or something. Netflix yeah. or... Or DVD, maybe. Yeah, or, possibly so. YouTube. Yeah, there's also a, a company called Super Strange Video that sometimes I'll buy something for some, like, Phyllis Diller and the adding machine and some really oddball stuff. All right, stuff look for really Stockard Channing and Silent Victory, <laughs> yeah. referring to her deafness, I guess. Ms. Oh. O'Neill continued to race and perform stunts for films like Smokey and the Bandit 2 and the Blues Brothers oh. until her retirement in the early 1980s. Some artifacts from her career, like the crash helmet she used... Yeah. <laughs> are in the Eureka, Idaho Pioneer Museum. Deaf people can do anything, she said. Never give up. When I was 18, I was told I couldn't get a job because I was deaf, but I said, someday I'm going to be famous in sports to show them that I can do anything. Oh. Kitty O'Neill, stunt woman and speed racer. She was 72. Well, thank you, Isaac and Karen, for being our guests today. Yes. You are an inspiration and a delight. Mm-hmm. Karen, I should say. Okay. Excuse me. Got it. Oh, God. <laughs> Gave you a little side eye, but it was okay. All right. <laughs> Best of luck on La Ruta. Thank yes. you. Can thank we you so much. See and all your future it. endeavors. Can't thank wait you. to see the show. We're going on what day? December December 20th. I think we're coming to opening. Opening. Amazing. I'll be there in January. Right. So yes, yes, you'll have yes. Things worked out. It's okay. I love it. It's great. Great. Visit com. That's dash one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening. Mm-hmm.